Hello, this is episode 20 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. I apologize to my listeners for the delay in posting this episode. Being on lockdown and working from home while also supervising my son's online schooling has thrown a wrench in the works in terms of scheduling and time management. On top of that, a dental emergency caused me to delay recording even longer. But I promise to try and stick to my usual schedule from here on out. Before getting into the main story of this episode, let's look at some hate crime-related news. A third trans woman has been murdered in a week as a wave of anti-LGBT violence worsens in Puerto Rico. The bodies of Serena Angelique Velazquez Ramos, 32, and Leila Pelaez Sanchez, 21, were found in a burned-out car on April 21st. Prior to their deaths, Penelope Diaz Ramirez, 31, was killed in a correctional center on April 13th. Her death was reported on April 27th. It marks the ninth violent death of a transgender person in the U.S. this year. There is no longer any doubt this is an epidemic of anti-LGBT plus violence, said Pedro Julio Serrano of the Coalition for the Search for Equity, a Puerto Rican LGBT plus group. The last remaining victim of the August mass shooting at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, has died after nine months in the hospital. Guillermo Memo Garcia coached a local football team and was shot while selling lemonade with his wife to fundraise for the team's children. His wife, who was also shot, said she lost a warrior but gained an angel. The death toll in the August 3rd attack, which officials say was a hate crime against Hispanics, now stands at 23. More than 30% of Americans have witnessed someone blaming Asian people for the coronavirus pandemic, according to a new Ipsos survey conducted for the Center for Public Integrity. 60% of Asian Americans, who made up about 6% of the survey's respondents, told Ipsos they'd seen the same behavior. We covered coronavirus-related hate crimes in our previous episode. Last year marked the 100th anniversary of a pivotal summer in American history, African American history, and the Civil Rights Movement. It was known as the Red Summer of 1919. Author James Weldon Johnson, who also wrote the lyrics to Lift Every Voice and Sing, gave it that name because of the blood, 
that stained the streets of so many American cities and towns. This episode is the first in what I intend to be a series about the Red Summer of 1919, with new episodes posted each month on the anniversary of the year's events. I've used several resources in researching this series. Among the most helpful were Cameron McWhorter's book, Red Summer, the Summer of 1919 and the Awakening of Black America, and David F. Krugler's 1919, The Year of Racial Violence. At least 25 riots and incidents of mob violence took place from late spring through the early fall of 1919. White mobs struck black churches as centers of black life and organizing in black communities. More than a dozen churches were burned. As many as 97 lynchings were recorded and more than 250 African Americans were killed by white mobs as violence erupted in places like New York City Memphis and Knoxville, Tennessee, Baltimore, Maryland, Norfolk, Virginia, Chicago, and Putnam County, Georgia. African Americans had endured violence since the first enslaved persons arrived on the shores 300 years before. Those who survived the journey from Africa to the Americas faced the unspeakable horrors of the Middle Passage. But the Red Summer was different, and not just in terms of the number of attacks upon entire communities in a short time. Several factors turned the nation into a powder keg with multiple fuses in 1919, not the least of which was white supremacy. From the nation's birth, the right to vote was limited to property-owning white men. That changed in the 1830s during the Andrew Jackson administration, when the right to vote was expanded to include most white men over 21. That was the moment when whiteness became a requirement to vote, and white supremacy gained a toxic hold on American politics. In the documentary Africans in America, America's Journey Through Slavery, historian Nell Irvin Painter describes the Jacksonian era as one for the common man as long as the common man was white. Personhood and citizenship were reserved for white men, she says. This is, I would say, the great watershed where whiteness makes a big difference in becoming a citizen. Historian Noel Ignatiev makes a similar observation in the same documentary. He says, the racial system, the system of white preferment in employment, in political access, and in citizenship came to embrace virtually all so-called white people in this country who did in fact have a stake in the advantages of racial supremacy. They had access to jobs from which even free Negroes were excluded. They had the right to vote. So definitely white people gained from the system of racial supremacy. Without that, white itself would have been a meaningless category. It would simply have been a physical description like tall. White supremacy and the system of slavery it supported and justified would drag the country into civil war. After the war and Reconstruction, white supremacy still gripped the psyche of white Americans. In the late 19th century and early 
20th century, violence was the primary method used to keep African-American freedmen in their place. Racial attacks and pogroms fueled the migration of African-Americans north to find work and escape the violence of Jim Crow. By 1919, as many as one million African-Americans had fled segregation and the lack of economic opportunity in the South for northern cities. Whites in northern cities saw their presence as competition for jobs and their nascent political power as a threat. Strikes, rising prices, unemployment, returning veterans who couldn't find jobs, and the rise of communism combined to create economic anxiety across the country. Factory owners in the North welcomed migrating African Americans both as a source of cheap labor and a weapon against white workers who were organizing for better pay and working conditions. Most unions were closed to blacks, making it easier for factory owners to use them as strike breakers. These conditions led to resentment among ethnic European Americans as blacks competed for jobs and housing. Black neighborhoods in many northern cities began to expand to the point where blacks could no longer be confined to areas designated for them and began encroaching on areas designated for whites only. Meanwhile, tensions were growing in the South as plantation owners faced a loss of cheap and even virtually free labor. At the same time, African-American sharecroppers who remained in the South began organizing for better prices for their crops and better treatment by plantation owners. Another factor was that African-Americans were actually making money in 1919 because of the enormous demand for cotton and textiles worldwide. They were buying houses, cars, and land. Whites in small southern towns felt threatened by some African Americans achieving an economic status equal to or higher than some whites. At the same time, Americans were increasingly anxious about the rise of communism. The Bolsheviks had taken over the Soviet Union, and communists and anarchists were agitating all over the world. In the U.S., black assertions of equality and civil rights were equated with radical action and the revolutionary message of Bolshevism, even though links between communism and African-American efforts to achieve the full rights of citizenship were pretty non-existent at the time. In a private conversation in March 1919, President Woodrow Wilson said, the American Negro returning from abroad would be our greatest medium in conveying Bolshevism to America. Wilson may have given voice to the ambivalence and doubts many white Americans felt about returning black war veterans. In his 1917 war declaration address, Wilson proclaimed the world must be made safe for democracy. With this, he imbued America's participation in the war with a higher cause and purpose. But Wilson's words rang hollow for African Americans for whom democracy and equal citizenship were distant dreams at best. On the eve of America's entry into war, disenfranchisement, segregation, debt peonage, and racial violence were a daily reality for African Americans. Still, many answered the call. 
Some 380,000 African-American veterans returned home from the First World War. They answered Wilson's call to make the world safe for democracy. They heeded the call of black leaders who urged them to close ranks with white Americans in the war effort. They heeded the call of leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote, Let us, while this war lasts, forget our special grievances and close our ranks shoulder to shoulder with our own white fellow citizens and the allied nations that are fighting for democracy. We make no ordinary sacrifice, but we make it gladly and willingly with our eyes lifted to the hills. Even as Du Bois and other leaders issued their call with a clear understanding that black soldiers would be called upon to make no ordinary sacrifice for a nation that never afforded them the rights of full citizenship, they hoped that black soldiers would return to a country grateful for their service and ready to confer upon them the freedoms they'd fought for overseas. Instead, black soldiers returned to a country that recognized neither their service nor their humanity. Instead of gratitude for their service, they were faced with white mobs eager to enforce white supremacy by attacking individual veterans and, on one pretense or another, entire black communities. Du Bois described the violence in Dusk to Dawn. He wrote, The year 1919 was, for the American Negro, one of extraordinary and unexpected reaction. This reaction had two main causes. First, the competition of emigrating Negro workers pouring into northern industry out of the South and leaving southern plantations with a shortage of customary cheap labor. The other cause was the resentment of American soldiers, especially those from the South, at the recognition and kudos which Negroes received in the World War, and particularly their treatment in France. In this case, the sex motive, the brutal sadism, into which race hate always falls, was all too evident. The fact concerning the year 1919 are almost unbelievable as one looks back upon them today. During that year, 77 Negroes were lynched, one of whom was a woman, and 11 were soldiers. Of these, 14 were publicly burned, 11 of them being burned alive. That year, there were race riots, large and small, in 26 American cities, including 38 killed in a Chicago riot of August, from 25 to 50 in Phillips County, Arkansas, and 6 killed in Washington. For a day, the city of Washington in July 1919 was actually in the hands of a black mob fighting against the aggression of whites with hand grenades. 36-year-old black veteran Bud Johnson traveled to Santa Rosa County in March of 1919. Johnson, a native of Alabama, made the journey to bury his father. Having done so, he boarded the steamer Helmar in Milton to make his way home, but he would never make it back. When the steamer stopped in Pensacola, Escambia County Sheriff James C. Van Pelt and Captain E.E. E. Harper of the Pensacola Police boarded the steamer, dragged Johnson ashore, and arrested him for criminal assault. 
earlier that day, a white woman in Pace reported that a black man had beaten her upon returning home from shopping. The news whipped white residents into a frenzy, and men formed posses to find the so-called Negro fiend. As is the case with many lynchings, the details are lost to time. We don't know why Johnson was targeted. Authorities argued that he matched the description of the attacker. Others suggested there never was an attack, but that white landowners had pressured the white woman to make a false report in retaliation for Johnson refusing to surrender a family farm to settle his father's debt. Johnson was taken to the county jail from which mobs had seized and lynched two more black men a decade earlier. The next day, Santa Rosa County Sheriff John Harville took custody and decided to take Johnson to Montgomery, Alabama, where they would catch a train for Jacksonville. Harville and Johnson were ambushed near Castleberry, Alabama, where an armed white mob abducted Johnson and returned him to Santa Rosa County. Johnson was chained to a stake and burned, his skull split open with a hatchet. But Johnson was reported to have said, Would that I had died in Germany, rather than come back here and die by the hand of the people I was protecting, before he was burned alive. The Milton Gazette printed this description of Johnson's fate. The conclusion of the story is found in the fact that the charred remains of the burnt Negro was found by passerby near the scene of Wednesday's crime, and that an abundant supply of light wood and a strong smell of kerosene would indicate that care had been taken that the job was quickly and thoroughly done. The summer of 1919 would come to represent a new era of resistance for African Americans and reinforced the idea of a new Negro ready to literally fight for safety, dignity, and justice. Rather than meekly accepting the status of second-class citizenship and the violent enforcement of white supremacy, black veterans organized other men in black communities for self-defense. Du Bois expressed their fighting spirit in a May 1919 editorial, Returning Soldiers. He wrote, We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. Make war for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States of America, or know the reason why. There were outbursts of violence early in 1919. A New York Times article, which seems to be the only available source of information on these early incidents, reported a race riot in Bedford County, Tennessee, on January 22nd, and another in Blakely, Georgia, on February 8th. After the murder of Bud Johnson in Florida, a race riot took place in Morgan County, West Virginia, where mining companies were using black laborers as strike breakers, leading to racial conflict. The violence started in the usual fashion. A black man named Hugh Johnson was accused of assaulting a white woman. A mob gathered outside the courthouse intent on lynching Johnson. Officials had to flee with Johnson to the next town over. The mob followed, forcing them to flee again. The first sizable race riot in 1919 took place on April 13th. 
in Jenkins County, Georgia. 66-year-old Joe Ruffin got up early that morning to do his chores, feeding his pigs, cows, and horses, before heading to the Carswell Baptist Church for a festival to celebrate its 52nd anniversary. More than 300 people were expected to attend. Preachers from surrounding counties would deliver sermons, and the choir would give a special performance. Ruffin had already sent his children ahead in one of the family's two cars. He had a large family. A widower, he had three sons and four daughters living with him, and another son and his family living just down the road. Ruffin farmed land that had once been part of the plantation where his parents had been slaves. He was even on good terms with the Daniel family, the former slave owners. At the time, Ruffin owned almost 113 acres, running up to seven plows a season, a significant achievement for a black farmer. Unlike many other blacks in the area, Ruffin could also read and write. It was promising to be a successful year. Cotton was fetching the highest prices ever, and demand was enormous. The war had been profitable for cotton as textile mills needed tons of it for uniforms and other war-related goods. The end of the war opened an even broader market, even as the spread of the bull weevil limited supplies. The result was a windfall for Ruffin and other farmers. Like most counties in the region, Jenkins was rural and poor, a network of plantations and small towns along a major road. Blacks were two-thirds of its population. Most were illiterate and only a handful were allowed to vote. All the county government officials were white. Things were changing, however. The barriers erected by Jim Crow notwithstanding, land ownership among blacks in Georgia had increased by 75% from 1899 to 1919. Blacks in this new class sat on church boards and led social groups, had good relations with white politicians and business owners, and often served as go-betweens in times of racial friction. Ruffin was an example of this new respectable class of blacks in the state. He had prospered through luck and hard work and was known to never give offense to any white man in the county. Yet, McWhorter writes, by the end of the day on April 13th, most white men in the county would want Ruffin dead. Ruffin's youngest son, Henry, arrived at the farm at around 11.30 a.m., to pick up his father. Around 2 p.m., they reached Big Buckhead Church Road, the last leg of the trip to the festival at Carswell Grove Baptist Church. The church was founded amid the turmoil of the post-Civil War years, when whites at Big Buckhead Church kicked out blacks who had for generations sat in segregated pews. Porter Carswell, a white judge and owner of the Bellevue Plantation, gave the black congregants two acres of scrubland to build their church just down the road from Big Buckhead. The congregants named the church in his honor. After joining the crowds of men, women, and children who milled about the church grounds talking and laughing, Ruffin remembered he'd left his house unlocked and decided to drive back home. As he waited for people to move out of the way, an older Ford pulled up behind him. 
Ruffin looked around and saw its occupants were two white law officers and a black man in handcuffs. Ruffin recognized the black man as Edmund Scott, a friend of his, and the festival's marshal of ceremonies. Jenkins County Police Officer W. Clifford Brown was at the wheel. Thomas Stevens, a Millen Police Night Marshal, was sat in the back with Scott. Upon catching sight of Ruffin, Scott shouted to the officers, I can get him to stand my bond. Why the officers were at the black church gathering is unclear. They had no warrant, and Stevens was well outside his jurisdiction. Known for going after stills and liquor joints, the officers may have been looking for illegal alcohol. Prohibition was making its way through Congress at the time, but Georgia passed a law banning alcohol in 1907, partially in response to the Atlanta race riot of 1906. The law had little effect on alcohol consumption, and the underground manufacture and distribution of alcohol thrived in the state. At least one news report later said Brown suspected Ruffin and Scott of operating a still. According to L.W. Beach, a white superintendent at a nearby plantation who was driving black attendees to and from the church for a dollar a ride, the officers weren't there to investigate Ruffin or Scott. Instead, the officers claimed they'd arrested Scott because he'd brandished a weapon after they almost crashed into his car. They were taking Scott to the Millen jail on a charge of possessing an unregistered firearm when they pulled up behind Ruffin's car and Scott shouted for help. Brown stopped his car and called for Ruffin, who got out of his car and stood on the running board of the police vehicle. Ruffin asked what the problem was with Scott, and Brown claimed they'd found a concealed weapon in Scott's car. Ruffin offered to write a check for his friend's $400 bond, but Brown said he needed cash. Ruffin said he couldn't get that kind of money on a Sunday. Brown then said, God damn it, I am going to carry him in. A crowd gathered around the car, including Ruffin's sons, Lewis and John Holliday. There were several versions of what happened next. People at the scene said Ruffin reached in and tried to pull Scott out of the police car. Brown, incensed, shouted, God damn it, get back. He pulled out a pistol and struck Ruffin in the face. The gun discharged, hitting Ruffin on the side of the head and knocking him to the ground. Some people say Ruffin lay unconscious in the dirt for a few minutes, while others said he got up immediately. At least one person said Ruffin's eldest son, Lewis, wrested the gun from Brown and shot the officer in the head, neck, and body, killing him. Others said it was Joe Ruffin who drew his own pistol and killed Brown. Still others said Stevens got out of the car took cover and pulled his gun. Scott, handcuffed and caught in the middle of another round of gunfire, was shot to death. Stephen slumped to the ground, wounded. In the blink of an eye, Brown and Scott were dead, and Stevens lay bleeding on the ground. Black men in the crowd attacked Stevens. Some said that Ruffin's two sons led the assault. Ed Tankramore, a white man who witnessed the shooting, said, Every time he would get up, they would knock him back until they got him down on the side of the car. One of them placed his foot in his breast, and the other handed him an oak limb, and right there they stopped him. 
police would later find a blood-soaked oak branch beside Stephen's body. Ruffin said that after being shot, he fell to the ground and did not know anything at all until his son, John Holliday, and his friend Willie Williams picked him up and walked him to his car. Williams tried to hand him his checkbook and offered him a gun, but Ruffin waved them off, saying he had no use for them. I'd better go to the doctor because I believe I'm going to die, he said. Ruffin may have thought he was likely to die from his head wound that was gushing blood, but he also knew he would surely be lynched. Two white law officers were dead, and the white mob was sure to come for him. Word quickly spread across the county. Blacks hid in their homes while white men grabbed guns and headed for Carswell Grove. Ruffin asked to be taken to the home of the most powerful white man in the county, chairman of the Board of Commissioners, Jim Perkins. Ruffin told Perkins, I was only trying to offer him, Brown, a bond for Edmund, and he got mad and shot me down for nothing. Perkins recalled Ruffin telling him, Mr. Brown shot at me and it made me so mad I jumped up and emptied my pistol at him. Perkins got the county jail doctor to bandage Ruffin's head and drove to meet Sheriff M.G. Johnson at the crime scene. The white farmers gathered at the scene grew incensed upon learning that Ruffin was alive and at Perkins' house. Perkins and Johnson rushed back to protect Ruffin. They had Ruffin lie in the back of Perkins' car and headed north as fast as they could. Cars loaded with angry white men followed them as far as Waynesboro, and Perkins and Johnson decided to drive another 45 miles to the nearest big city, Augusta, and put Ruffin in jail there for safekeeping. Meanwhile, the white mobs in Jenkins County took vengeance. White men with guns charged the church in Carswell Grove, firing as they came. Congregants escaped through windows and took off to hide in the woods. The mob torched the church. Smoke and flames were visible for miles. A group of white men went to Ruffin's house and grabbed his youngest son, Henry. Somewhere near the church, they caught another of Ruffin's sons, John Holliday. Louis Ruffin escaped. The men took the two Ruffin brothers back to the smoldering remains of the church. The mob burned Ruffin's car, a clear symbol of the black farmer's relative wealth. White men then hung a chain around one brother's neck and a rope around the other. They threw the brothers into the flames. It's unclear whether the brothers were alive or dead when the mob tossed them into the fire. At some point, members of the crowd shot at their bodies. The violence had only just begun. The mob moved on to Millen, where three black Masonic lodges were burned and two more cars owned by blacks were destroyed. At least one black man was shot, and members of the mob told a reporter it was his own fault for running away when they approached. Murders of other blacks were reported in remote parts of the county. The violence continued with the abduction and lynching of Ruffin's friend, Willie Williams, who'd helped him up after he was shot. Sheriff's deputies took Williams into custody and placed him in the county jail for his safety. Learning that a mob was searching for Williams, they hid him in a nearby stable. The mob found Williams quickly. They dragged him to a remote swamp hollow three miles out of town, 
where they tortured him and shot him to death. Word came back from the mob that Williams had confessed to a plot to kill Brown for his anti-alcohol efforts, but would not tell them where Louis Ruffin was hiding. The story from the mob was that the blacks had lured the officers into an ambush. Another black man who was arrested, Jim Davis, also confessed to the plot and was left alive. The story, without evidence or attribution, found its way into news accounts, offering whites moral justification for their violence. No newspaper, black or white, definitively reported the number of people killed, though the estimate ranged from four to seven. Almost as soon as it was over, white newspapers dismissed the riot as an aberration. Black newspapers ran the story of the Jenkins County riot, mixing their agendas with reporting of the facts. On April 19th, the Chicago Defender, the nation's largest black newspaper with a circulation of 100,000 that penetrated the Deep South, reported the story with the headline, White Officer is Killed for Breaking Up Church. The Defender laid the blame upon the white officers for trying to break up a revival meeting. William Pickens, Dean of Black Morgan State University in Baltimore, wrote about the riot on the front page of the Washington Bee, which served the nation's largest black population at the time. Pickens wrote that Ruffin, one of the wealthiest Negroes in Jenkins County, had been shot and his sons lynched partially because whites were jealous of his wealth. White mobs continued to roam Jenkins County for days. They grabbed a black man from Burke County, believing him to be Louis Ruffin, and released him only when he was brought back to Millen and properly identified. They threatened to get Joe Ruffin from his jail cell in Augusta, prompting jailers to move him to a jail in Aiken, South Carolina. Still, Ruffin couldn't assume he was safe. Georgia led the nation in lynchings in 1918 with the most recorded lynchings of any state. Mobs had traveled long distances to kill people before. In 1915, a mob traveled across several counties to lynch Jewish businessman Leo Frank for the murder of a young white girl, Mary Fagan. The county prosecutor charged Joe Ruffin with the murders of Officers Brown and Scott and demanded his return to Jenkins County for trial. If by some chance Ruffin had made it to trial without being lynched, his conviction and hanging would surely follow. No whites were ever arrested or charged with any crime related to the April 13th riots and lynchings. County Commission Chairman Perkins, who had helped Ruffin to safety, ruled no inquest into the white attackers was necessary. Learning of his son's death, Ruffin said, This is an awful thing. It is awful. I am sorry for Mr. Brown. I am also sorry for Mr. Stevens. I'm sorry for their families, but there has been nobody suffered in this matter like I have. I did not do nothing at all to cause that riot. Jenkins County was not an isolated event. It was just the beginning of what would become known as the Red Summer of 1919, when riots and lynchings occurred throughout the country, taking lives and causing harm to thousands, but also galvanizing black Americans to fight 
for the rights guaranteed them, but long denied. The Hate Crime Files podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.